You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 016, where I continue my conversation with Carsten Schroeder, co-founder and executive chairman of Amplitude Capital. This episode is sponsored by Saxo Bank and Swiss Financial Services. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. You know, obviously there are more of the medium to long-term um trend following managers out there yes. and so it's quite uh, interesting to hear sort of your perspective and that is you know the debate i guess uh, very often comes down to are people using moving averages or are they using price breakout as their indicators um you know what's the pros and what's the cons but actually my question is more does these traditional trend following type um, indicators do they also have validity uh, in the short term space I don't think that anything that you can read in a book as you read it there uh, will work in the short-term trading space. Okay. Now, if I understood you correct, uh, essentially your models will build you a, based on the signals, will build you an optimal position. So is that to take it that you essentially are kind of scaling in and out of markets? You're not sort of, a, you know, in and then suddenly you're out it is more of a a a process because the models work together to give you the the uh, desired uh, position is that correctly understood um that's correct i mean we obviously have all sorts of models that work together and then the you know we have kind of like a net situation between all of their inputs and that will give us the ultimate uh, the ultimate positioning in the markets. Sure. And when you, um, if we just look at it from a, a, a sort of a, a model by model point of view, does each model have any kind of stop loss when it uh, gets engaged? Or is that really, and, and I know we'll talk about risk management in, 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 in a little while, but, but just our curiosity, when you, when you decide on the size of the position for a particular model, does that go uh, in, in any case uh, in alignment with some level of, of stop loss for that? Or is that handled differently? Well, stop losses, um, the meaning of stop losses uh, in short-term trading is not as big as the, um, as the meaning of stop losses in, in longer-term trading because your models are relatively short-term and reactive. So it's, once you have them, it's not as, it's not as meaningful. Sure, sure. And in, when you look at, at, at models, is there anything that you uh, look for in, in terms of contribution, uh, meaning that, you know, a model in order to make it into the portfolio has to produce, you know, more or less the same contribution over time? I know they won't do it month by month, but over time you're looking for a certain, um, you know, uh, profit contribution uh for, for it to, to make it into the portfolio in the first place? Well, it depends on the situation. Um, I mean, we're mostly talking about components here. So components have to deliver, ideally, um, a consistent improvement in the system. Or if they are introduced for a particular reason, then they have to, then they have to deliver that 
um, specific performance characteristics. So I don't think that you can make a general statement towards that extent that somebody has to do an X percent of performance contribution. It's it's like a like what we do has a lot of component building, and so when we look at the new component, it just really has to improve um, what we have currently. And if it does that, then then that would lead to uh, to potential implementation. Sure. And in this sort of the short term space, um, if I can refer it back to the medium to long term uh, trend following uh, strategies, just to have a reference point, um, a lot can be said that actually the entries and the exits are not that significant. And what is really significant is actually how you size the position. How does that sit in the short term space? Because I could imagine that entries and exits also play maybe a, a bigger role due to the slippage factor that you've alluded to a, a few times. But I, I imagine that still position sizing also plays a, an important role. How, how, how do you see that? Well, nobody wants to nobody wants to do trades like big trades on one go. So everybody tries to split up those trades. Entry, entry and exit points are a design question of your program. Uh, that's a general efficiency question like uh, well, entry entry points will define your reactivity. So, a short term short term trader will obviously enter a trade earlier on than a longer term guy. And then the question is where you exit it. So you can exit it obviously through other models or through through like the reversion of your like your indicator actually turning around. And um, the whatever your models will tell you, obviously nobody wants to to like do big trades in one go. So in designing your models and designing your execution strategies, you always want to have like, you know, smaller activity at any given point in time. Sure. And and staying on that subject of, of sort of trade implementation, I imagine that your systems uh, essentially uh, are running 24 hours a day, five days a week, or, or and just constantly looking for, for these opportunities. Absolutely, we are trading. We are trading all markets. We are trading Europe. We are trading America. We are trading Asia. So yes, we are running five days a week, um, twenty-four hours a day. Sure. And how long does it actually take from uh, a signal to be generated for it to be executed? I mean, how how are we? Because obviously, again, in the longer term space, it's it's not that important. But but how quickly do you do your systems have to react to these things? Well, because we are still operating on a directional basis here, and we're not doing any arbitrage things. I don't, I don't think that like milli, milli, milliseconds matter so much to us. So it's not like we have to say oh, we need to be co-located to, to like do our business. But um, well, you got to be fast. So of course we we have we have a solid infrastructure, and we choose counterparties that have a robust infrastructure, and we have dedicated connections. So you would not obviously go through an internet connection for that. Sure, and yeah. just this—this this is not related directly to to uh, to amplitude, but just you—you you know a lot more about this than than I do. And yep. there is a lot of talk at the moment about high frequency trading and the politicians and 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 other groups uh, of interest trying to uh, maybe restrict that uh, to to some extent. Um, is 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 that kind of definition of high frequency? Is that sort of uh, so to speak? much shorter term than what you actually do. Um. Yeah, I mean, that is significantly shorter term, and it has 
it, it, ha- it has a different functionality. To be honest, it's more, it is more an issue on, on cash equity trading in particular when you have markets with defragmented liquidity, or let's say defragmented markets, so where li- there's not all the liquidity on one big central exchange, so you have dark pools and there are various exchanges. Those are things that we do not favor and, and any regulation that tries to mitigate this, we are we're clearly in favor for. Um, as well as any regulation that would address message to fill ratios and and co-location, because it's uh, I think markets are not there to create a technology um, you know a technology game, and um, at the end it's it's about investments and it's about placing assets and um, not doing doing like tech war games. So so therefore anything that you know, creates a stable, solid marketplace. We are clearly in favor for, and I don't think that like all this co-location stuff and and um, market order book manipulation is is really helpful. So, message to fill ratios um, when they become unhealthy, I think it's absolutely reasonable to to introduce penalties there. Sure. And now, you know, at at one point seven billion under management, clearly execution is a major focus. Um, do you see, I mean, with all the computer help we have nowadays, are you still able to find new efficient ways of, of, of executing your, your trades? Or do you also have to rely on certain increased liquidity, generally speaking, in the markets in order to, do you think, achieve the goals of, say, four or five billion under management? I have to say, from a pure slippage perspective, the last couple of years actually have not been that bad. Okay. So it's it's either I mean, some markets from a liquidity perspective have have been somewhat constant, and with the way we design the programs and the way we've uh, implemented execution strategies, we've managed to continuously lower our execution cost. Okay. So uh, whilst assets were rising, I mean, in two thousand nine or eight, we had like eight hundred million. Now we have uh, one point six, one point seven billion. Um, that's obviously, um, you know, that's I think that's that's a good result from a uh, from a way how we manage to digest this additional uh, asset load. Absolutely. Now I want to change subject away from trade implementation and talk about risk management. I'd love to hear if you could uh, describe in 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 your own words how you define the risk and 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 how you set the framework uh, of 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 sort of your risk levels or targets in 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 broad terms um and and how you embed it into your programs well <clears throat> the way the portfolio is constructed um, as as alluded to earlier is very much driven by volatility and liquidity in the markets at the end of the day, the the risk you have is like the position you have in the market. The bigger the position is, the bigger your risk. So um, being a short-term trader, obviously risk management plays a bit of a different role because your models are so reactive. So you will have, uh, if the market turns the other way, you will turn the other way pretty quickly as well. Of course, there's the risk of overnight and over weekend gaps, which you will be exposed to, and there's nothing you can do about it. Sure. And um, we do have um, position limiters and um, risk limits in particular how big aggregated positions can be. Mm-hmm. And um, we also have two risk management layers that will filter volatility developments and um, decrease the position sizing accordingly. Sure. And does does market correlation play a different role when you're short term um, than it might do for 
for some more the traditional uh, t- uh, trade length of, of a tr- medium term or, t- or long term uh, manager? I would say market correlations plays a smaller role the shorter term you go. Yeah, because then, I mean, you treat the markets individually, you react individually. Uh, but I can totally see that. Obviously, if you're a long term trend follower and you're flat out long in all equity markets and you're you're flat out short in all bond markets, you know, that's, um, you know, that's a, that's a position. Uh, I mean, <laughs> of course, sure. if things go the other way, then, then you, you're going to be very exposed and it may take some time to turn around. So from that perspective, I would certainly manage that. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Now, shifting gear again to uh, another topic that um, people uh, like to, to talk about, um, drawdowns. Um, you know, a big part of, uh, you know, being a CTA means that uh, you're, uh, you're in a drawdown of some sort. And um, what's happened in the last few years, not, not necessarily in, in your case, but certainly generally in the CTA space, is that the drawdown profile has uh, changed uh, in some cases quite dramatically uh, compared to maybe the previous two or even three uh, decades. How do you, I mean, how, what have you seen in terms of your own drawdown profile in the last few years if I'm not mistaken, actually, you're you're not that far away from from an all time, from an all time high. But yes. but you may have seen something uh, during the last few years that um, that you can reflect on. So drawdowns are you know everyday business in a CTA because statistically speaking, I think you're only only at twenty percent of the time you're actually in a high water. Sure, and it's it, it's the natural thing with with a trading strategy. Now we, um, you know, we explain environments to our clients like what would lead to a drawdown. We are not a big fan of drawdown management because it statistically doesn't make sense, in particular for a short-term trader because the the position you have on tomorrow is independent from the position you have sure. today. Sure. So if you cut it, well, you, well, you're cutting it because you lose conviction in the program. Well, then you may just well redeem because. When you cut in a drawdown, you lock in the loss and you will limit yourself in the recovery. Sure. And nobody can tell you uh, a priori how big a drawdown is going to be. There are statistics that you can say, well, a drawdown should not be bigger than 1.5 times the volatility. Well, given the wrong market environment, it can be bigger. Sure. Um, does, do drawdowns have changed? I don't, I don't think so, really. Uh, it's, I mean... I don't think that the environment we're currently experiencing is like creating tail risks for, for CTAs. It's just like a, a bit of a mediocre, shitty environment, which just doesn't allow you to make a lot of money. I don't think it creates a huge problem. It's just like, it's not that the bad, that there are extraordinary bad price movements. It's just like they're not the great runs where you can make a lot of money on. Sure. Uh, it's, more, it's more that problem. Sure. Then there are obviously strategies that we're relying on certain value or. Uh, that that are relying on trades or exposures which have changed, uh, which will experience a drawdown because so far those trades have been very beneficial for a very long period of time. But even then, since this is all being communicated and should have been understood by the investors, I don't think that you can blame it on the funds. Sure, um, that's that comes back to the almost comes back to like when you when you do a, a, a when you do a credit a credit trade. And uh, you know you, you're trading a spread, then well, yes, you collect you collect premium as long as that spread works. If things go bad and you have a highly leveraged position, well, then you have a problem. 
you can't really complain about it because you should have known it all the time. I mean, that's why you're collecting a premium because sure. there's some sort of tail out there. So to that extent, I think when you understand what a, what a strategy is doing, is doing, you kind of can relate to, to the drawdowns, but never forget there's no guarantee in terms of a maximum drawdown. Absolutely. Um, I'm sort of just taking what you've said earlier on and trying to put it together here. And it would seem to me that because you have or you want to play a specific role in the portfolio with the downside protection, would it be a fair statement to say that typically maybe your drawdowns would then occur when other things in the portfolio of an institution, the bonds, the stocks, whatever it might be, are, are doing well. So in a sense, your, your, the timing of drawdown may actually be, be, uh, you know, less stressful for the investors in your case because they may occur uh, at a time where other parts of the overall portfolio is doing well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a drawdown occurs in our case when you have range bond markets. So, I mean, the very perfect example is like what we've seen now in May was equities just trading range bound in a one and a half, two percent range. So, that's, um, that's obviously not helpful. And that should not be a stressful period for investors, generally speaking. Sure, sure. But, and I, I, I'd like to, to, to hear your uh, uh, comment on this uh, question uh, due to your experience. But, of course, drawdowns for many investors and for some managers certainly adds to the emotional roller coaster. How do you balance uh, sort of, how do you balance this uh, emotion uh, when 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 the drawdown periods occur yeah i mean i can i, I can <laughs> totally agree it's a, it is a bit of an emotional roller coaster and even like even if you if you don't when you add up all the negative days you have in a year and you add up all the positive days sure uh then the delta would be like the obviously the return you you, you make um i mean neglecting geometrical effects here but the number is actually surprisingly big in terms of the negative and the positive performance that you will have to digest. So sure. my point is, when you're percent up for the day, you go like, yeah, I mean, that's kind of like the way it's supposed to be, right? <laughs> uh, but so you, your positive emotions towards that 1% up are not as strong positively as your negative emotions when you're percent down. Sure. Or even, let's say, we take the spread. Let's assume you're, 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 you're 90 basis points down and you're percent up. If you continue to do that, you're going to have like a you know kind of like a somewhat good uh, uh, scenario here, or let's say 80 basis points down, one percent up. Yeah. Um, so that uh, uh, that emotionally would still feel tough because you're doing a lot of 80 basis points. Sure. And um, uh, yeah, I can agree. And also with with fee um, you know negotiations, putting pressure obviously on management fee. Is you'll become more and more reliant on performance fee, and sure. uh, that's uh, yep, that's the gray side and the dark side of the business. Sure. Is there anything that managers can do to help investors overcome these concerns, where you know they don't necessarily have to see a drawdown as 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 a big risk, but just part of the strategy i mean i guess you're, you 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 are doing a lot of that you know being so intimate with your investors in 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 the uh, in your dialogue but i mean is there anything in in general you think we 
or managers can do a better job of explaining this? Um? Uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, I think at least in our case, I, I feel like the emotional stress is, high, is higher on our side than on the investor side because, I mean, the investor has a portfolio. I would say, generally speaking, the portfolio would have done relatively well in the last couple of years. So, sure. Sure. Um, what we only have what we have. But coming back to, to your question, I think that it's, well, there are two things. I mean, you should, you should be transparent, you should be honest, and you should be humble. And, and that, those three things in combination actually will, will get you um, a satisfied investor. Sure. Next uh, area that I'd like to uh, talk about um, is really research. Uh, you, we've already, uh, or you, you so so um, elegantly said that you know investors they want uh, managers to continue to to innovate and evolve, but they don't want change. So uh, I know that's certainly you know uh, as, you know part of the setting, but. But in terms of research, do you have like a, a, a cycle of, of research that you follow or, or how does research come about? Is it ideas being thrown around in the office or, or how does that work? Because mm -hmm. I, I, I know that's a really big part of, of, of what you do and, and a big part of your success. Yeah, I mean, research is the integral part of the business. And at the end of the day, when you invest you are not getting the track record that has been there. You will get whatever we will manage to produce in the, in the future. So, so research is certainly from an investor's perspective the topic that, that you should spend most of your time on due diligence. Not, not really so much like maybe the actual things, but like how the process works. And um, Because you have to be comfortable with the process because at the end of the day, The manager is not going to turn to you and say like, "Oh yeah, we have this idea. Do you think we should implement it?" So it's you have to be comfortable with the way how ideas are selected, how they are managed, and what the decision making process towards an implementation or a rejection of that idea is. And um, so we, you know, we have a, a committee which which manages this. I'm I'm managing the the research with my co-heads. We have a weekly research meetings where we discuss on an open forum what's going on so that also sometimes helps to get ideas from other team members. Um, basically projects get allocated to individual research manager, um, to individual research members who will um, do the testings, who will get ideas, who will try to work that problem. And then as things you know may look good, We do a lot of validation work. So validation means, like, first of all, that the um, you know all the programming has been done correctly, that we understand um, all the impacts in terms of where the performance has been coming from and what negative aspects of a particular components there potentially could be. And as all of these questions get answered along the line, it may eventually lead to an IT implementation. Sure. And, and there's a sign-up process. Actually, there's a There's a system that we have internally which is like requires a couple of people to say, um, yeah, this is actually okay and nobody has any major concerns before things will actually uh, be put in place. Sure. And do you feel that you might be a little bit um, constrained in your research given the fact that you, uh, on one hand, you want to have uh, a certain profile of the product, meaning, you know, you, you want it to make money, uh, you know, when equities go down. So I could imagine that there, that that excludes some ideas because they may not be, you know, working in, in that kind of environment. So do you feel that there are some, some constraints as such or, or, or not really as long as you, uh, you know, know what you're looking for? 
Well, there are sometimes situations where you have things that, that may look attractive, but that just don't go along with, with what you're doing or what you're supposed to do. And then, yeah, then it's tough luck. I mean, then you just have to stick with, like, you know, um, what, what your kind of mandate is. And otherwise, there's always room for creating new programs or creating prop testing stuff and, and uh, looking at things. And we're currently, like, building an equity uh, strategy and we've been building it for quite some time. It's sure. now in the prop trading phase. So there's, there's always that, uh, that opportunity. I think when you do things, that when you want to do things that are not within your original return characteristics, yeah. you should carve it out. Sure. If you think it's awesome, then yeah, carve it out, make a new program. You can make it available to your investors either as a component or even as a new program. I think that's totally fair. What's not fair is just changing stuff on, on the back of like not really telling people or forcing them into something that they maybe don't want. And to be honest, I mean, look, we have um, we have a product here that has a very high liquidity. If you start doing this, you run the risk of your investors saying goodbye because they're just not comfortable with style drift and strategy sure. drift. Yeah, sure. No, I can completely agree. Now, shifting uh, to another area, which is a little bit related to what you just said, uh, the business side. Now, overall, um, I would say Amplitude has been the exception to the rule in the last few years you've as you've described you've had uh, you know uh, an amazing growth uh, at a time where a lot of managers have had you know decreasing asset bases and and some have even gone out of business why do you think you've been so successful it comes back to to a point we were talking about early on is like the the selection of your of your investors we have and we actually you know, some, sometimes people may take this the wrong way that they say, oh, yeah, like the guys from Amplitude are arrogant or we have no interest whatsoever in hot money. So the moment like you, when you start a conversation, the first question from the other side is, can we see the performance from last year? That's kind of like a showstopper. Sure. I, there's no issue with looking at performance. Don't get me wrong. I mean, at the end of the day, we are getting paid to make money for investors. But if that is your primary concern, then you're probably, then we are probably not the right fund for you. So um, having clients that are really interested in what you do and like how you do it and when it makes money and when it doesn't make money, that's kind of like the client you want because that is also the client that will stay with you through more difficult time periods. And I would say our growth has never been aggressive apart from maybe 2007, 2008, where by the way, we had hot money flowing in, which did sure. flow out in 2009 which we replaced with institutional money we're not going to make the same mistake again so ever since we had a pretty slow and steady growth um with with no real um yeah negative years on on aum so so i think to that extent it's it's been stable it's 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 not been a radical growth path but it's been stable and i guess that's also uh, thanks to a you know a, a very good communication we have with our client base, and um, and Heiko is doing a, a really good job in keeping everybody up to speed. There, we have regular calls on on strategy. We have we do an onsite visit at our um, you know at our clients' offices once a year. They mostly do an onsite of, uh, visit once a year at our offices, so that beyond the conversations we have on the phone or video conferences. Uh, there's also, you know, 
um, seeing each other and and talking about things in a bit more detail. And I guess that's important. Sure. Communication is certainly key. And speaking about offices, I wanted to ask you something completely different, and that is location freedom because you've actually also done th something a little bit uh, unique namely you chose to move away from the pulse of one of europe's financial centers to the uh, a little bit less uh, you know stressful place of of zook in two thousand late 2008 i think it was tell me about whether that's uh, has that had any impact good or bad on 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 the way you do things Yeah, it's. I mean, we uh, back in 2008, we we said like we don't want to be in a big city anymore and uh, want to move to a place where there's a bit more of a balanced lifestyle, which from a business perspective, I have to say, had had no negative impacts. I mean, of course, you can move to a Caribbean island, which probably will create some issues, and <laughs> also within Europe, I guess there are places which are not so. Um, how can I say? They may not be seen from an investor's perspective as such a professional base. But I guess when you talk about Switzerland and when you talk about Fafikano Zug, there's a lot of financial institutions sitting here, uh, actually a lot of firms that are significantly bigger than we are. So uh, also logistically speaking, it is, um, it is fairly easy to get here. Uh, so we had no uh, issues with, with investors whatsoever uh, when, we, when we made that change. And from a From a personal perspective, coming back to the um, to the comments you made earlier on with regard to uh, the emotional side of it, it's obvious. I think it's easier to handle that in an environment like like we're here. And I'm I'm just actually looking at the lake now and then seeing you know a kite surfer out there and just contemplating the idea if I should go in the evening for a quick run on the lake, uh, just sure. a quick kite surfing session. And I certainly couldn't do that in 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 London, right? Uh, it's 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 not an option. And we have a lot of people who do. We have families here who do lots of sports, and for you know, for 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 those people, it's a it's a really good setup here. Sure, absolutely. Now, um, if we look at the CTA part of the overall um, hedge fund universe, um, you know, when it all began, it was uh, quite U.S. Uh, dominated uh, as an industry. But in the last 10 years or so, it would seem that the European managers have taken over and created some of these massive uh, success stories of which, you know, one uh, you're certainly one. Um, why do you think that European managers have kind of um, become the preferred uh, type of, uh, of, of, of firm for investors to do business with? I think um, that the European firm, the European firms, had more of a scientific approach towards it, and more of a technology-driven approach towards it than the American firms. The U.S. firms largely came from a trading background, and with the way the markets have developed, I and a lot of the old firms, the, a lot of the old um, systematic firms, the old CTAs are from the U.S. Like the, the newer firms, I mean, even a firm like Winton is not that old. Um, you know, they've they've all been set up here in Europe with with a strong academic focus, and um, that just has has been really essential in the last couple of years. I mean, having said that, there are peers in the U.S. I think who do who do really really well, uh, also on the on the technology side and on the research side, and and having a lot of uh, you know academics on board. I mean, at the end of the day, Renaissance technology is just like set the ultimate example. So. Sure. Um, but in terms of vast majority, I would say, yeah, the business is uh, is currently stronger in, in Europe. Sure, sure. 
The last section I want to move to, um, I call it general and fun, but what it really is, it's, it's about getting into, to hearing your sort of uh, more uh, personal thoughts on, on certain topics and, and also get maybe to get to, to uh, know sides of you that people may not know. But I wanted to start out by asking just generally from your perspective, what does it take to become a great trader or a great CTA in your opinion? Ooh, I don't, um, I, I think you have to, <clears throat> first of all, you have to love the markets. You have to be, uh, you have to love math as well. I think you have to be good with numbers. Uh, you just have to love the idea of like trading stuff. And that, that I think is kind of like a prerequisite. Then the question is like, what does it take to be, uh, to become an entrepreneur? There is like a whole range of other factors. So you can be a fantastic sure. trader. It doesn't mean you will be a, fantastic or successful hedge fund owner uh, because and that's a very good yeah because point, there's yeah. a business side to it and there's an entrepreneurial side and the risk-taking side to it so um, you there are people who are excellent traders who should actually stay in a framework where everything else is provided to them and they just have to worry about the trading and there are people who may actually not even be the best traders and may not even be the smartest guys and not the best researchers uh, but they have the entrepreneurial spirit and everything that has to come with that um, and they will probably run the businesses. Sure, sure. And if you go back to your own beginning, were there any CTA firms that you were aspiring to at the time? Anyone that you thought, wow, if we could be like them one day, that would be fantastic? Honestly, not at all. Because like when we came to London, I didn't even know the term CTA. <laughs> and I don't think I could have named anybody uh, that was um, that would have been one of my peers. So I I have um, great respect for the vast majority of my colleagues. I'm I'm good friends with the vast majority of my of my colleagues. I would say, and I hope they would say the same thing about me. Uh, and and there are firms that I think have you know um, have have great success. They have been built up in an amazing way. They have fantastic teams. They have great research. They have. Uh, um, you know, good, good academic people and a good process. And those are the things that we, that we want to do um, and that we, we aspire to and that we, you know, like we try to set up, set up and run our business this way. So um, I would not say that there's like a particular firm where we say, oh, we look up to them. But um, there are certainly really good companies out there that have done a great job. And I, I have a lot of respect for them. And uh and um, yeah, we try to obviously continue and survive and and grow the business in a steady pace. Sure. Now you mentioned the entrepreneurial side, and and as we both know, the entrepreneurial journey is uh, ups and downs, and successes and failures. What would you say has been the biggest failure that you've encountered on your journey, and and what did you learn from it? Yeah. <laughs> On the business side, there are so many things that you can do better with hindsight. And um, it is therefore relatively hard to, to pick out a failure. And that's why I would like to refrain actually from doing so. Also for another reason, because I don't think that we should fool ourselves by thinking that the things went right, went right because we made the right decision. I do 
really believe that the element of luck in terms of building a great business is not to be underestimated. And by luck, I, this is like all sorts of things. You, like a lot of, when you run a business, you have to make a lot of decisions under uncertainty. So because you're doing this, you just cannot claim that because it went the right way. You can say, yeah, of course I've known it. No, if you would have known it, there wouldn't even be the need for a big decision. It would have been so obvious. So you have to do things um, with a lot of uncertainty around you. And see, coming back to statistics, just because mm -hmm. 10 times you've made really the right core decisions just does not mean that you are like, that, that this is the holy grail, right? I mean, you can be lucky sure. 10 times. 10 times statistically sure. means nothing. Um, like coming to an investor cycle, if you, look, if you... Uh, uh, invest in businesses and you have invested in four businesses and three of them made you a fortune, are you an awesome investor? I don't think so. So sure. because like if somebody does 100 investments and 65 are profitable and overall it's a good return, I would say you probably understand what you're doing. Sure. So that's why coming back to my to the own thing, do I have super big regrets? Not really, because well, you decide things the way you do with given the information, given your moral standards, given like what you want to achieve, and even if it goes wrong, I don't think that that re regret should really spoil your life. And um, at the end of the day, what you really have to learn when you when you run businesses, I think, once you've taken a decision, you take you 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 have taken it, you took it. You stand by it and this is it and you put it behind you because I think going back and saying, oh, if I would have done it differently, I could be here and here. I think that's really a showstopper. That's going to kill you. Sure. Yeah, so you really got to leave it behind you. If there is a lesson to be learned, important, learn that lesson. Uh, otherwise, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Get on with it. Yeah. Now, um, you've obviously had a tremendous amount of success. So what inspires you today? What what keeps you motivated to to keep going? Yeah, I mean, we've been running this now for 10 years, which I have to say feels like a long time. And mm -hmm. um, it helps every once in a while just to go and like see other people. And I've, I've just, um, like two weeks ago, I went to an entrepreneurial um, like meeting or get together from my university. And I have to say it really inspired me a lot because there were, there were like young people who had just graduated uh, building up new businesses and they were super super excited about it just the way they talked about it just the way they presented themselves and I mm -hmm. think you have to uh, you have to really maintain that attitude and that mindset you you definitely want to make sure that you stay entrepreneurial and do not become a manager mm. I think that's important in particular in businesses that require a certain level of creativity once you lose that touch I think it becomes an issue Sure, sure. Now I've only got a couple of questions left uh, for you, Carsten, and um, and this one might be a little bit um, well, probably not tricky for you, but if you could ask a question to the next guest here on Top Traders Unplugged, which most likely will be one of your peers, maybe not in the short term space, but what would you ask them? I would. Well, it that really depends on like what type of um, fund it is. Sure. If it would be, if it would be a CTA, hmm, 
Oh, what would I have asked them? Uh, see, it's interesting. If it would be a long-term CTA, I would really yes. ask them, like, do you think you can continue? And by that, I mean, like, the asset classes you've been trading, the way you have been trading them. Sure. Um, for the next five years or ten years, and being comfortable to to say that you will make the same amount of money or like you will achieve a similar sharp that you've realized in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. Okay. And do you know what you would ask um, someone in your own sort of uh, space? Hmm. What would I ask in my own space? You don't have to, if you don't have an, a, a, a question, that's fine. I actually have one, uh, an extra yeah. question I just thought of. And that is, you've been obviously in many, many, due diligence, meetings, phone calls. Um, what is the question that investors are not asking you that you think they should be asking you? I think they should spend significantly more time in understanding when the money was made and how it was made because uh, investors will naturally ask a lot about, about the difficult periods right. and they almost take the good periods as granted. Okay. But it is really equally important to talk about the good periods as well. Not because I want to, we want to promote ourselves. It's actually quite the contrary. To like understand why are you making so much money in that month? I mean, is there like a downside to what you're doing there? And sure. why would that downside kick in? Sure. Because Very of course point. we go through all the risks and all the negative months, saying okay, we're sawing here and there and so on and so forth. But sometimes mm -hmm. you're gonna ask yourself, why is this manager putting out a ten percent month? when the average return in the CTA space was only 1% of flat. There must be a reason for it. Like, why do you think that you've captured this? And what are you doing there? Whilst everybody else did not seem to be doing that. And most importantly to that question is, what's the downside? That, that is really, I think, where, where, where investors should put a little bit more focus on. Sure. Now, final question, Carsten, but it might not be an easy one, but... Yeah. Uh, could you tell me a fun fact about yourself that people don't usually know about you? A fun factor. A fun fact. Something that people don't usually know about you. Um, yeah, I can, I can tell you a fun factor. I can really imitate the Saxonian German accent very well, which of course I would never do in client meetings. It also doesn't really, it's also not that funny in English. I could okay. kind of like do it, but... Um, sure. I was always thinking if like one day I should do it on CNBC, but I'm kind of concerned that maybe the the producers may not find it so entertaining and it would be my final show, but uh, yeah. it can be hilarious. You are always welcome to come back here and, and do it and we will certainly make it publicly available. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, but anyways, um, before we finish uh, the conversation, uh, perhaps you could tell me where uh, the listeners could best reach out to uh, you and learn more about Amplitude Capital. So it's very easy. You can go to our website, www.ampcap.com. That's A-M-P-C-A-P.com. And uh, you will find a phone number and an email address. And the emails, it's, the emails will be read by one of our assistants and then forwarded to Heiko or even to myself, depending on what's regarding. I'll just call the mainline the office and then somebody will help you out. 
Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Carsten. It has been great conversation. I really appreciate your transparency and your willingness to share the insights and views that you have on your own strategy and your firm and, and the industry as a whole. And of course, our listeners can find details on our discussion today uh, in the show notes uh, for this episode on toptradersonplug.com. And I hope we can connect at a later date and hear about all the great thing you do and maybe even a new product uh, being launched. Thank you so much, Neil. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That's all for this episode of Top Traders Unplugged. We'd love for you to be a part of our community. So head over to toptradersunplugged.com and let us know what you thought of this episode in the comments section of the show notes. Take action, get involved, and suggest who you would like to see as a future guest on the show or how you think we can improve. Constructive comments will be rewarded with 30 days of free access to our premium member area. So head over there now and we'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.